This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's big question, how can Jesus change the brokenness of our lives? The people who met Jesus Christ in person faced the same big life questions we face today. But when they met Jesus, things immediately started to change for them. And today we're considering the brokenness of the world. And to help us, we have Tim Curtis join us. Now, Tim is the Senior Associate Minister of Unichurch at St. Jude's Anglican Church in Carlton. Tim is originally from the UK, but married a Melbourne girl and moved to Melbourne in 2012. He previously worked as an architect before training as a church pastor. Please welcome Tim Curtis. It's an enthusiastic welcome for you there, Tim. I feel very honoured. Thank you. Well, to kick off bigger questions, we'd like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. And today we're encountering the brokenness in the world. So I thought I'd test you on brokenness. In fact, more precisely, expensive art breakages. Now, are you an art connoisseur at all? Uh, no, no, not at all, in any <laughs> sense. Ever watched the Antiques Roadshow? Oh, uh, yeah, I have, yeah. Right, okay. Well, that might give you an advantage, yeah, Okay, all right. Perhaps. Okay, anyway. So which of the following four art accidents was the most expensive. Okay, there's four I'm going to outline. Which is the most expensive? Was it A? In 2006, at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge in England, where a man tripped over his shoelace and fell down a staircase, colliding with three 17th century Chinese vases of the Qing dynasty. The man, Nick Flynn, said, I snagged my shoelace, missed the step, and crash bang wallop, there are a million pieces of high quality Qing ceramics lying around me. The vases were restored and now reside in a protective case. Or was it B? In 2010, when a woman taking an adult education class in the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art accidentally fell into the actor, a 105-year-old painting by Pablo Picasso. It resulted in a six-inch tear in the canvas, and the painting is considered one of Picasso's most important works. The damage was restored, but it came at a price. Or was it C, when British artist Tracy Emmons' work Self-Portrait Bath, which was a neon light tangled in barbed wire in Edinburgh's Gallery of Modern Art, sustained substantial damage when the barbs snagged a visitor's clothing? Or was it D? In 2000, when porters at a Sotheby's auction house in London put a picture by artist Lucian Freud into a crushing machine because they thought the box it came in was empty. <laughs> so which of that? They're all true. All of those have happened. Now, you can, for those who are in the audience, you can text away your answers. But which of those is the most expensive? I, I think I'd, I'd have to go for... Which, which was the Picasso B. actor? Yeah, I'll go for B. It's got to be the Picasso, hasn't it? Well, the correct answer is B. Yeah. The value of the painting is B. It was estimated to have been reduced by half. Now, that was from $130 million to $65 million. So that, that trip was worth $65 million. Now, you want to be tying your shoelaces before going into an art a museum before? Or? I reckon. Rob, yeah. can I ask you a question? Sure. If you accidentally put your hand through a picture in a gallery like that yeah. and no one saw, would you tell anyone? <laughs> would, you, would you just walk <laughs> on? Should ask our out of our audience, how many of you would actually say if you've actually damaged a Picasso, how many would say that you've done it? Okay, don't have, you, don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to answer that as well. This is all not right. an honesty change. But thank you for the question. But I'll, I'll stick to answering the <laughs> Asking the questions if that's all right. Thank you. Okay. What about your kids? If you took them to a museum, would you be ensure that their shoelaces are tied? I, I think I would tie them up first. <laughs> <laughs> you have, have you, yes, you know my children quite well. In fact, I th in fact, I'd never take them to a museum <laughs> where there was anything valuable that might be broken. Okay, right. Okay. 
Okay, so question two, the second question of a quiz. A man wrapping a case for appraisal on the TV show Antiques Roadshow accidentally chipped it while wrapping it up. Now, the vase cost him three pounds at a car boot sale. How much did the chip cost him? Was it A, nothing? It was old anyway, and the Antiques Roadshow appraiser didn't notice it. Was it B, £12.50? The appraiser said a bit of sellies and nail polish would fix it up. Or was it C, £12,000? The appraiser said it was the most expensive chip they had ever seen. Well, so what, do you, what, do you, what do you think there? On the basis that you're asking me the question, you've got to go for C. Haven't you? <laughs> 12, well, your 000. powers of deduction are remarkable, Tim. The answer, of course, is C. The vase, which would have been worth £14,000 without the chip, would now sell for just £2,000. So, Tim, congratulations in our expensive art breakages quiz. You two got out two, two out of two, 100%. Wow. Please give him a round of applause. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Rob. So, so Tim, paintings and vases break. Yeah. What about people? Uh, yeah, but people do break. I think, uh, actually, we're all kind of acutely aware of some sense of brokenness. Here's my analogy. This is why I think we are. So isn't there a famous, isn't there a famous song by someone about fix me or... I'm showing. I'm not sure, what, is that about drugs or something, is it? Or is, it's not, is it about broken? Didn't Coldplay write a song about I Can Fix You? And, like, you know, incredibly popular song. Yeah. Millions and millions of people like singing it at Glastonbury. And the only reason I can make sense of that is that there must be, therefore, within, set, within people, a very powerful sense of being somehow broken. But something's not quite right. Yeah, something's not right. Yeah. So, in what way then are people broken? Oh, look, Rob, I think there'd be different ways in which people would uh, experience brokenness. You know, it could be through experiences of sadness or it could be an experience of bereavement or it could be through sickness. It could be all kinds of ways. I suppose if we want to understand how most profoundly kind of how we're broken, that, you know, I guess that's what Jesus is able to do. He's able to tell us more about our brokenness than we could ever have understood. In, in what way? I don't know. Look, again, there's lots of different ways to answer the question. Perhaps one of the best ways to answer it would be just to talk about my own experience of brokenness and just how kind of Jesus helped me in that, helped me understand what real human brokenness is about. Sure. Well, do you want to tell us? To tell us there was a time in your life when you felt acutely broken. Do you want to just share a bit about what happened? All right. I mean, I think a sense of being having your life a bit messed up is something that most people carry with them uh, a lot of the time. It's not a unique occurrence. But I thought it'd be helpful just to talk about a particularly acute experience of, of feeling like my life was in a real mess. And that was actually as a young guy. I was 19 years old, first year of university in, in the UK, and ended up in a difficult and painful situation. It's not an unusual situation for people to end up in. I was going out with a girl. The relationship ended. And about a week after it ended, she came to me and she said, I'm pregnant. The child is yours. So we were 19 years old, no particular commitment to each other. And so we decided what we're going to do is we'll, we'll terminate the pregnancy. We'll abort our child. And so we made that decision and we were told by the sort of world around us that was an acceptable decision and that was a legitimate choice to make. But my own experience was very, very profoundly different. That having made that decision, and we went through with it, and the child was, was aborted, uh, 
it had an immediate and very, very negative impact on me. And I kind of plunged into a really, really vicious depression, a really nasty run-in with mental health problems. And I think what triggered that was there were two things going on. Firstly, when you abort a child, you are losing a child. And there's an enormous amount of grief associated with that. And as a 19-year-old guy, I was totally unprepared for that. But also what's going on with an abortion is you haven't just lost a child. There's actually something much more complicated and much more unpleasant going on. You've actually killed your child. You've done it yourself. And so there's this kind of horrible, poisonous mixture of real, really profound grief, but also very, very profound and very real guilt. And that mixed together absolutely killed me. And unsurprisingly, I, I wasn't really able to live with what I'd done or live with what I'd become. And that was my experience of very, very acute brokenness. And I remember being in a sense of, I don't know what to do. Who do I turn to? Where do I go for help? I had a very unstable home life. And so as a completely non-religious 19-year-old guy at university, I asked God to help me. And I, I can remember it now. I can see it in my mind's eye. I remember lying on my bed and I shouted at God. It was the middle of the day. I shouted out and I, said so I shouted sorry to God about what I'd done. And then I remember praying a little slightly quieter prayer so that all my labors couldn't hear. Um, just saying sorry for kind of not just that, the abortion, but other things that I'd done in my life. I'd been really mean to my twin brother when I was a kid and stuff like that. And I just said, help me, help me. I'm, I'm in an absolute mess and I haven't got anyone else to turn to. And I meant it. And here's the extraordinary thing that he answered my prayer. He answered my prayer in a very powerful way. So I wasn't a Christian at the time. I wasn't going to church. I didn't even know any Christians. And yet God met me and helped me. And it wasn't straight away, but some weeks after that, I had a very powerful, I don't know what you call it, encounter with God, a sort of conversion experience. The best way to describe it was a, a sense of kind of being filled with the infinite love of God. And there were two things I'd say about it. It was quite frightening because it was very obviously supernatural. It was totally outside anything that, outside my previous experience. And suddenly this was going on. It was very frightening. It was also very wonderful because here was suddenly, I suppose, the deepest need of my heart being met in a very powerful, felt way. And so, look, it was, a, and it was a massive shock. It was a massive surprise to me. God answered my prayer. I'd said sorry to him about what I'd done and about other things I'd done, and he answered me. And what was extraordinary, so I, I was in the midst of a very, very frightening depression as a young man. I had this extraordinary encounter with God, and then over the coming months after that, I came out of this depression. It wasn't immediate, but that experience was the kind of turning point where God actually healed me of this depression that I'd brought on myself because of what I'd done. And if you like, that, that was my experience of, of brokenness. And I think what, what I learned through it was that my deepest brokenness wasn't so much sickness, it wasn't so much sadness. My deepest brokenness was, was really about the wrong things that I'd done. And actually, that was the, the thing within me that I just couldn't live with. I couldn't stomach. 
to give it a Bible word, it was my sinfulness. And Jesus says, we were made to be just like God, to look like him, to behave like him. And actually, the, the, the greatest damage we do to ourselves is instead of behaving like God, we do terrible things. We do sinful things. We do evil things. And that is our great brokenness. That was my experience. And what Jesus taught me, what God taught me, was that it's actually that brokenness that he is powerfully able to fix. And he did. He did. Look, Rob, I, I've no, no, talked at length. I don't know whether that was what you were expecting. No, that's fine. No, thank you very much for sharing that obviously deeply personal encounter. As part of Bigger Questions, we reflect on the Bible, and we're going to meet a woman today who was broken in many ways. The story comes from the New Testament book of John, one of the four biographies of Jesus' life we have. And here, a Samaritan woman has an encounter with Jesus which changes her life forever. Uh, it says in John 4, 4 there that Jesus is traveling with his disciples through Samaria. Now, Tim, the Samaritans and the Jews weren't exactly the best of friends. No, I don't think they were. So I think there was a very long-standing division between these two communities that I think it would have been four or five hundred years old, even at the time that John was writing this, at the time that Jesus was traveling through Samaria. And it was a historical division. It was, it was driven by a number of things. But one of them was that, that the Jewish community saw the Samaritan community as kind of outsiders, people who didn't really belong to God's people. They had once belonged to God's people, but they didn't anymore. And there were a number of reasons for that. But one of the particular reasons was because they had mixed the kind of true worship of, of the God of Israel with the worship of kind of pagan gods and other kind of wrong things. And they said, because you've done that, you, you're kind of outsiders. You don't really belong to the community of God's people now. That was one of the big reasons why there was this big division. Well, then we see there in verses 6 and 7 that Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman come to draw water from the well. Now, John specifically records this encounter between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at the sixth hour, which is at noon, the middle of the day. So a Samaritan woman, an outsider, the significance of this woman drawing water by herself in the middle of the day? We're not in a society where you have to draw water regularly, but apparently in, in context where you do, the normal time to do it is early in the morning before it's kind of really hot. And so it is usually the women will go out and they'll draw the water that they need for the day. What's odd is that this woman is doing it in the middle of the day. And I think there's a suggestion there that perhaps she is, within this community of outsiders, she is an outsider amongst outsiders. And we're going to find out as we read on perhaps why she's had five failed marriages. There's probably quite a lot of shame associated with that. And so it seems she doesn't want to come along with the other women and draw water early in the morning. She wants to do it privately on her own in the middle of the day. So she doesn't have to endure the kind of shame that perhaps she would have felt from within the community. So you think she might have felt guilty? Oh, look, I'm not, I can't read someone's... <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't know. But I imagine that, you know, look, it would have been a very much, much more conservative society than the one we live in today, where to have one failed marriage would have been a huge stigma and would have caused an enormous amount of shame. And here's a woman with five failed marriages. She's living with someone who isn't her husband. I have no doubt that there would have been a lot of shame, potentially even disgrace associated with being in that position. And she would have felt that, no question. Mm. Do you, in your experience, do you relate to this woman? Oh, look, it's, I, don't, I, I don't have five failed marriages. <laughs> so, I, so, 
I, have, I only have one, one ongoing marriage, which has its <laughs> ups and downs. Uh, I, I suppose for different reasons. Yeah, I do have some re- sense of rela- relating to her. I imagine she was probably in a pretty lonely place. I don't know what you think, but I imagine that if she's being put in a position where she, she wants to come and draw water on her own because of how she's treated by the rest of the community, she's probably feeling pretty desperate. She's probably feeling pretty lonely. And I can relate to that. I remember being in that situation. My own position was, pretty, was self-inflicted. It was because of the things I'd done and feeling very desperate and very lonely. I imagine that you know, if she's got five failed marriages, she must have borne some responsibility for that. I wonder if her situation was also self-inflicted to some extent. Mm. So, yeah, I do feel some connection with her. It's not a happy place to be. Mm. So what do you think then it's, is significant that Jesus, a re- Jewish religious man, comes to speak to her? What a good question, Rob. I think there's something even more significant than the fact that Jesus, a, a, a Jewish religious man, comes to speak to her. Jesus is the Jewish God. That's one of John's points right from the beginning. He's the Jewish God, the, the Holy of Holies, the, the person in whom there's nothing impure, no blemish, no sin. And he is sitting down next to the outsider of outsiders, a person whose life is shameful in in many, many ways. He's the pure and perfect son of God, and here he is reaching out to her and initiating relationship with her. So there's something much more profound than just a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman. It's the Jewish God speaking to a Samaritan woman. It's an extraordinary, poignant, unbelievable moment of grace in the Bible. I think it's thrilling. Uh, and then in, in verse 10 there, we see that the Samaritan woman makes his point, says, so why do you ask me for a drink? And then Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What does he mean by this? What's living water? If any of you have read on a bit uh, in John's Gospel, you'll know what living water is. So in, uh, at the end of chapter 7, the, the question is, uh, is answered explicitly. And it says that by living water, Jesus means the gift of God's spirit, the gift of God himself. And that, what, that makes this encounter even more extraordinary, that as, as Jesus meets the outsider of outsiders, the gift that he offers to give her is God himself, the gift of God's spirit. And I think that's what he means by living water. And then the woman is understandably surprised, but doesn't quite understand. She kind of misses, there's a double meaning there of living water. I suppose there's also the fact that she could, she's just thirsty. She wants some real water to drink and presses him. But Jesus continues and explains more in verse 13 and says this. He says, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So what's Jesus offering here? I think it's easy to miss the magnitude, just the, 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 the greatness of what Jesus is offering to this woman as he offers her the gift of God's spirit. There's two vast and infinite blessings here that he's offering to this desperate outsider in a position of vulnerability, in a position of shame. The first thing he's offering her is immortality. And I think that's, that's really clear. So he says, indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so as Jesus offers to give this woman God, 
to give her God's spirit. God is immortal. He can't die. And so as we receive the gift of God's spirit, God unites himself to you and he says, you now will share in my immortality. I will bring you safely through death. That is the first immeasurable blessing that Jesus is offering this woman. The other thing that he's offering her is the most extraordinary relationship. Because actually as he offers to give you God himself, as he offers to give you God's spirit, it's the most extraordinary offer of access, relationship with God of the most intimate and close sort. You can't be closer to God than having God living in you. And again, it's very poignant, isn't it? Look, so here's the outsider of outsiders. And Jesus is saying, look, I will bring you closer to God than you could ever imagine. I'll give you God himself to live with you. So two great blessings, immortality and real intimate relationship with God. So then after the woman asked for this water, Jesus then suddenly changes the subject and asked the woman to call her husband there in verse 16, to which she says in verse 17, I have no husband. So why do you think that Jesus suddenly changes the subject from living water to her history with men? It would have been extraordinary being there because up till now it's probably been this kind of amazingly warm conversation and you can just imagine that the atmosphere and the conversation might have sort of frozen over a little bit. She, she probably would have been very reluctant to sort of talk any more about it. But I think Jesus is doing two things. I think the first thing is he's actually letting her know, I'm not just a normal guy, I have some supernatural knowledge about who you are. And he's trying to demonstrate to her that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's one of the ways he does it. But I also think, I wonder if he's trying to say to her, look, you've obviously been looking for something in your life. This pattern of repeated failed relationships. There's something you're looking for, something that you're hungering and thirsting for that you're not finding. And maybe he wants to highlight that and say, look, what you're looking for, I can give you. The real security that the non-existent perfect husband has failed to give you. That real security I can give you. That perfect intimacy. That closeness of relationship. That perfect person that you have failed to find yet. I can give you because I can give you a relationship with God. And I wonder if Jesus is wanting her to just sort of make a comparison between her experience of a broken world and broken husbands and saying, look, there's a much, much more secure and better relationship on offer here. Well, the great tennis champion Boris Becker once said, I had won Wimbledon twice. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It is the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything and yet they are so unhappy. But I had no inner peace. Was Boris Becker thirsty? Well, after running around winning Wimbledon, he probably was. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, yeah, 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 okay. I think, look, I, mean, I understand your question. Good, good, it's I'm a glad, good question. Yeah. And I think what, what your point demonstrates is there's actually two ways in which people can end up feeling a kind of emptiness in life. One of the, is this kind of, I think what's happened to this woman is it, it sounds like her life has really gone wrong. And, that, and that, that's what happened to me. And you kind of end up feeling like your life's in total mess and you feel very thirsty, if you want to call it that, very empty, a real sense of need. But I think that sense of need can appear in another way, and, and this is what Boris Becker's talking about, is you can be someone who gets it all, you know, who has extraordinary success in life, and you suddenly realise, I'm still not fulfilled. I remember having an extraordinary conversation with my dad. I have a successful dad. I love him very much. Uh, he made lots of money amongst other things. He did have one failed marriage to my mum, but apart from that, he made lots of money. He was able to retire quite young. 
And I remember chatting to him about a year into his retirement, and he'd made the decision to go back to work. And I said, look, why, Dad? You know, he bought himself a little farm, built a beautiful house in the middle of it. You know, he'd been married for 20 years to my stepmom. And he said, look, as I look on the horizon, I've, I've got all this stuff, but on the horizon, the only thing left for me is death. That's what happens next. And I can't bear it. And here was someone, he, he really had everything the world had to offer. And yet he found he was empty, he was longing, because he had no answer to this ultimate problem, this ultimate need, death, despite having all the success in the world. And so that was, if you like, that's another way to discover emptiness. You can have all the success in the world and you realise it's not enough. And I guess that's what Boris Becker's talking about. Mm. So, Tim, wrapping up, how can the lessons from this woman's brokenness and her encounter with Jesus change our lives? I look in a million different ways. Do you want immortality? And that's not a joke. Do you want immortality? Because that's what Jesus offers to you. Do you want to know the person who can create a universe and can kind of hold it together in the palm of his hands? Do you want to know that person in the most extraordinary and intimate way? Because that's what Jesus offers you. They're not small things. And so how can this story change your life? It can turn your life upside down in the most dramatic and wonderful way. On offer here is a relationship with God. On offer here is immortality. On offer here is your deepest, most profound needs to be met. Your need to sort of address your mortality, your need for relationship. And for them to be addressed in ways that you hadn't even dreamt of. I don't know, if, if, if Jesus doesn't change your life, nothing, nothing else, nothing else will, nothing else even compares to what he promises to do for us. And he changed your life? Yeah, absolutely, dramatically. I have a, um, I have a twin brother, Ed, and when I became a Christian, I, I was the most not Christian person you'd ever met in your life. You know, I just was totally uninterested in religious things. I met Jesus, my life changed dramatically. And my brother, my brother Ed just thought I'd gone bonkers. You know, all, all the things that we used to do, we used to do lots of very naughty things together. Uh, some of them were innocent, some of them were very unhelpful and destructive. And suddenly here was his brother not doing those things. Here was his brother who'd struggled like him with mental health issues, finding some extraordinary stability and happiness in his life. Here's his brother, 20 years on, happily married, stable. And, and Ed just thinks, I don't know, he doesn't know what, what, to, what to make of it all. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question. How can Jesus change the brokenness of our lives? From John 4, 13 to 15. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir... Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Tim Curtis. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.